0: Hello, everyone. My name is Father Christopher Beshears, and I am the pastor of the Panhandle out here in Oklahoma. Um, It's great to have you back for another episode, this fourth episode of NARUS. Now, already that's pretty exciting for me, kind of a milestone, but I've also got something else going on that I'm pretty excited about. Uh, It's been a little work in the progress, and it was at the request of some of the parishioners here. They really like podcasts. So I'd like to happily announce we are live on all of these platforms. Uh, the podcast and our episodes are going out there. Uh, they're kind of rolling out right now. And so you can go on to Amazon Music, Google Podcast Stitcher, Radio Public, and Spotify. Um, these are all big, very big services. Uh, most of them you don't need any kind of subscription for. You don't need to pay any money. Um, so you just go on there, download these um, different platforms. You can get their apps. You can just load up the episodes whenever you're out Uh, listen to them in the car listen to them wherever you go and so this is one way that people said you know father i like it but you know not always ready with youtube and of course we know out here in the panhandle we might be traveling through some areas that doesn't have the internet at that moment so it's good to kind of preload those episodes and and never lose track so uh very excited about that and some of you might say now hold up father (laughs) we see that there's something missing out there we see that iTunes isn't on there. You're right, and I've had a little bit of trouble getting that arranged. There's a there's a few more kind of blocks there that's a little more difficult for me to to get through, and so I'm working on that as we're you know as we keep going on. But I, I wanted to kind of go ahead and get this out of here. I was too excited to wait until we figured out all those problems, and so I'm still working on it. But uh, that's will be the work in the progress. So. Let's get on to the topic of the day. In fact, two topics today, two topics that were actually the first two questions that I received. And so I'm a little apology to the people who have been waiting for these. I told them, I said, I want to get them right out. They were excellent topics. I really want to get them in the first episodes, but it was going to take a little more time to develop them. And I really want to take some time with them. And the the first episodes, I was really trying to get the ball rolling on it. So uh, I've held off for them until now. But I do want to cover them because I think that they are important. And there are questions that seem to come up in one way or another to a lot of Catholics. So today, the first question is talking about the extraordinary form of the Mass. Now, uh, some people have seen this. They also call it the Latin Mass or they call it the Trinitine Mass. It goes by all of these different names. But maybe most commonly, it's the extraordinary form of the Mass. Now, to explain that a little bit why is it extraordinary well <laughs> technically it was the ordinary form of the mass from uh, 19 or I'm sorry from 1570 under Pius v until 1969 under Paul the sixth so this mass is called the Trinitine mass sometimes because of its relation back to the Council of Trent which was ended um, there in 1957 um, or 19 uh, from 1570. Um, and when Paul VI put out this kind of universal mass. Uh, before that, it was still practiced but in, in areas, but he really kind of universalized it and said, you know what, this needs to be the mass of the whole church. And that's kind of a fun thing, too, about this mass that was led all the way up until 1969, that you could go anywhere in the world, any Catholic church in the world, any Roman Catholic church in the world, and you would enter in and it would be the exact same Mass. Now, the readings would be in their own languages, but they would it would be the same Mass. So you go in and all the prayers were the same, all the responses were the same, and you could go into any church anywhere in the world and just be a part of the Mass. And that was something that was really beautiful. So a lot of people sit there and they, they say, well, of course, the Latin Mass, right? This was the extraordinary form of the Trinitine Mass was just in Latin. And it wasn't until Vatican II that we could now say the Mass, uh, have the Mass in other languages. Not true. Uh, I mean, it's sort of true. I mean, it's it's what happened, but not because of Vatican II. In fact, it was the Council of Trent back in the 1500s um, that we were allowed to say the Mass in any language. Um, they called it the, the Vulgate language, and, and it's where we get the word today, vulgar, which in the Latin just means common or ordinary language. So when it was offered up. They said you could say it in the Vulgate. You could have the common language, the ordinary, and, but people didn't want it. The bishops didn't want it. Uh, the people of God were very used to the Latin, and so they said, well, we don't see a great need for that. Also, this idea of the common or kind of low language, um, the base language or the, the, the commoner language, the sense that uh, street language sometimes. The people were sitting there and saying, already Latin still held this great pl- pride of place, not only in the liturgy, but also in the academic circles. All of academia was still in Latin. And so people said, you know, it already has kind of this higher sense, and, and the Mass should have a higher sense to it. So they said, you know, why don't we preserve the Latin? Now, even still today, um, Council of Vatican II did not do away with Latin by any means. In fact, it very highly encouraged it still, but it said we will allow for the permission, uh, kind of the greater application of it, and kind of revisited the issue permitted by Trent so many years before, and said maybe now is the time to really ensure that people are very well integrated since the langu- the Latin language has diminished in education, far less schools were teaching it, certainly public schools had all but gotten rid of it, and it was mostly Catholic schools that were continuing that. Not every Catholic got to go to Catholic school. So being aware of these things and sensitive to to them, they made a good application of what was permitted at the Council of Trent. Now, I want to go over just kind of a brief overview of some of the factors or some of those kind of visual differences that if you went to an extraordinary form Mass, you would see some of these differences maybe straight off. And the first thing that you might notice as you walk in um, and you're you're examining this extraordinary form of the mass. You might say, okay, outside of the readings, <laughs> there's a lot of silence here. Um, in fact, the the extraordinary form has been really this very contemplative scene for the laity. Uh, for the priest, it's not so much, right? <laughs> he's praying, he's communing, he's interceding for the laity and the whole world. Um, in a sense, the extraordinary form tends to focus more on the priest being a priest. Or, I mean. The priest doing the priestly things. And it, it doesn't focus nearly as much on the, the whole, um, the, the participation of the laity. Now, this is not meaning that the laity don't have very much to do. On the contrary, they are to be fervently in prayer. Uh, not only for their own repentance, but also asking for the graces for the priest to offer the Mass well. But in all of this, you know, it's this one of the reasons why we... Kind of had this movement towards a more full and active participation, as is the Novus Ordo, uh, quotes Vatican II, that we have this this sense of more full and active participation because the bishops were seeing the bishops of the world were seeing that their people were becoming more and more distracted. There was this kind of explosion of devotion in the in the following in the previous two hundred years or so that all of a sudden people were sometimes even during mass not paying any attention to what was happening at the altar, the most holy sacrifice of the Mass. Instead, they were going around to these little side altars, lighting their candles, praying the rosaries, doing these other devotions, which is in by no means at all bad or or in any way um, not pious or not good. But to do them while the holy sacrifice of the Mass was going on, the bishops were sitting there saying, you know, they're missing the point. The Eucharist is the height. In fact, the Council of Vatican II said, it is the source and summit of our faith. And so, you know, they're sitting there, they're, they're missing it. They're, they're seeing that their devotions are almost more important to them. And they just come to church at the place, the locus, the place of where they're going to pray their prayers. So the bishop said, this is a problem. So, and there were certainly these kind of things that kind of got off the rails with uh, the mass before Council of Vatican II, and so the bishops, the Pope, um, sought to correct this and to have a full and active participation. And so that's what we have here. But, you know, some people might also say, well, yeah, so the extraordinary form is so contemplative and so beautiful and meditative, and so I want that. Well, hold on. <laughs> the Novus Ordo, if it's done properly, also contains these aspects and also contains a very great moments of contemplation and meditation and reflection, dignity and honor, and so if it's done properly, and I kind of put that out there as the qualifier, um, then the Novus Ordo also has all of these aspects as well, maybe in different proportions, but again, they were they were seeking to bring about, uh, correct some mistakes and to avoid others. And so as the Novus Ordo came about, there became this kind of distinction with the extraordinary form of the Tridentine form of the previous. So, um... Additionally, what you might also know is that it's almost all in Latin. In fact, um, if you go to an Extraordinary Form Mass today, besides the readings, um, the rest of it has to be in Latin. And the reason is, is because that's a requirement set forth in the Universal Permission for priests to do the Extraordinary Form. Now, that's kind of to, to also recapture this idea that we were talking about at the very beginning. You know, Latin had been the universal language, not just of the church and academia, but even the universal language of the world, the lingua franca. Irony of saying it, which means the the French language, but the, the, the language of the world had been Latin for so, so long. And in fact, the Roman church, the Latin church, had celebrated mass in Latin for more than 1,200 years. So there was already this kind of inheritance that we had received and beauty uh, with great development and enrichment, uh, poetry and, and hymns and all of this that has come about. And so it's not just that, it's to be thrown aside. But uh, I kind of mentioned the Roman Church or the Latin Rite. This maybe is, we maybe recognize that we're Roman Catholics, but what does that mean exactly? I don't want to get into it. This is probably for a future episode. But they're in addition to the Roman Rite, the Latin Rite, the Latin Church, there are 23 other major rites in the Catholic Church. So it's not just that this form of Mass is the only one that's Catholic. Uh, so it's so maybe a little mind-boggling, mind-blowing, but um, we can maybe get to that and round about that in another episode. Now, another thing which is commonly said, especially of the extraordinary form, and that you will see, I don't think I've ever been to an extraordinary form that does it any other way because I don't think they're even permitted to. Um, but they say, The priest has his back to us. (laughs) Well, in a sense, yes, you're correct. In another sense, not exactly. So in the understanding of the church, the priest is the spiritual leader, the father of the congregation, this family of believers. So his role is to stand with us, but at the head of us before Almighty God. Why? Well, one reason is because he was chosen by God. This was his vocation. He had to be chosen by God to come before God, to offer the prayers of the people and to seek God's blessing for his people. Now, this is kind of why we see there's a procession from the back, right? why does the priest have to process through all of the people? Well, it's because he's coming from amongst the people and he's coming to the front. He's been drawn to this place by God, not by his own will, but he's been drawn by God, this vocation, this call for him to come up to the head and to speak to God as the head of the people, the spiritual head of the people. So uh, this is something that, you know, as we, if you get to an extraordinary form mass or get to a mass, and not just extraordinary form, no, this is also in the ordinary form. Uh, the Roman Missal actually gives the indications that this is how we're supposed to normally say all of the masses, even the Nova Ordo masses. But it's something that hasn't been um, well implemented or um, maybe always practiced in its fullness in where we are. So, and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. After all, the Holy Father does his uh, versum populum. He doesn't do it uh, ad orientem. Ad orientem means to face the east, or to everyone facing God together. Um, and he does at the St. Peter's Basilica. He does a versum populum um, against the people or towards the people. So, but um, at at these certain points, you know, this this there's a beautiful meditation with it that as the priest stands up there part of the people but at the head of the people to stand before God and to bring their prayers and petitions before God almighty father to speak to God on their behalf to say the words the, to pronounce those those eloquent eloquent words well uh, for the people who might not be necessarily as eloquent as they want to be uh, even the priest sometimes that's why we have the missile but that he is bringing those prayers up and they all stand before God together. And so when the priest is praying, he, he's facing towards God. And you'll still see priests do this, um, even if they're versum populum. They will still elevate their eyes to God. The The Roman canon, uh, what we call the first Eucharistic prayer, it even says right in there in the instructions, it says, and 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 here the priest lifts his eyes to God. And so, you know, it's this, this beautiful moment uh, that reminds the priest, you know, he's directing these prayers to God the Father. And so uh, even if he's versed from Populum, he's still to, to, to raise his mind, his eyes, his elevation, his voice to God, and not to the people, right? You know, it's not a dialogue with the people in these moments. There are certain dialogues, and this is made really explicitly clear in the extraordinary form. Whenever the priest does turn towards the people, and he invites them, and he kind of exhorts them at certain moments to pray even more fervently. Um, and so he invites that in, and then he turns back with them. To again, all face God, because in that moment, you know, he's turning his back on God. Well, he's doing it to invite the people into that prayer, to invite them into that more profound expression. And then as they as they face God together, um, he, he speaks to God um, on their behalf, directing the prayer, but also with them praying, for instance, our father. And uh, that's a beautiful prayer in which he right beforehand has this dialogue with the people turns to them and invites them to this, and then turns back and they all pray together, Our Father. So um, I can go down rabbit hole in this. I don't want to get bogged down. We've got a long enough episode as it is today. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the next thing that we want to look at kind of as something which is a visual, especially of the extraordinary form, is that you might see there's a lot of use of the chapel veil. Uh, women wearing these chapel veils and it sometimes seems like it's limited to the extraordinary form. It's not. Uh, we've even witnessed here in our own church that some women are making use of these, and they are free to do so, um, to make use of this devotion and this practice in any Catholic liturgy. Uh, there's actually a lot of women who've talked to me about it, because, of course, I don't have any experience of it. Uh, but, and I'm very curious about what they have as this meditation. Uh, but it really has helped them to enter into a great prayerfulness Again, maybe something for a future uh, NARS but um and maybe one of those we can actually have a guest on here but at um, it was little known fact that it was still required by the church's law until nineteen eighty three in the nineteen seventeen code which led all the way up to nineteen seventy three it was still obliging women to wear a chapel veil any time that they were in the church um, now now that that has been um, dismissed um reduced away from being an obligation, now, a lot of women have taken it up as a personal devotion, and they've really found great benefit from it. Meditation, focus, uh, devotion out of it. And so that's a very beautiful thing for them. But we see it you know, very frequently in the extraordinary form, and maybe less so in the ordinary form. But that's one of those differences you'll see. And maybe the last major difference that I want to emphasize today is, um, and almost without exception, Uh, the laity in the extraordinary form receive the Eucharist on their tongues while they're kneeling. And you may say, okay, well, why Why is that almost without exception? For that, let's dive into topic number two. I'm going to do this little fancy, switch the graphic up here. All right, there we go. A little something else to look at. Now, the reception of the Eucharist. Let's kind of go back and cover some basics real quick. So we can set this up properly. So to be kind of a a minimal Catholic or a base Catholic, to say, you know, I am Catholic and I'm a practicing Catholic. Well, what are the basics of that? The church has given us then five precepts, the five precepts of the church. One of these is to receive worthily the Eucharist at least once a year and preferably at Easter. So even the church says you can still be a practice minimal base Catholic um, and not receive the Eucharist every Sunday. And there may be some very good reasons not to receive the Eucharist every Sunday, one of which certainly is mortal sin. Um, so we can talk about that later on, maybe, um, and, and when we are to receive, when we're not to receive. But to understand that, you know, you're not uh, motivated or, or forced to receive the Eucharist every Sunday, but to at least be a minimal Catholic, a basic Catholic, the church says you must receive. Uh, the Eucharist at least once a year, preferably at Easter. And this is maybe why we have a lot of priesters They hear this and they say, oh, okay, so I only have to go to church once a year. No, 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 no. Receive the Eucharist. Uh, going to a church, uh, you have to go every Sunday because it's a holy day of obligation. It's a requirement in the church, a moral obligation. Now, certainly COVID notice. At the moment, we have a dispensation um, that removes that obligation from us, Um, but under normal conditions, we have that. Now, something else to review is that Roman Catholics, to receive the Eucharist, must be properly prepared, and at least, and those are the catechism classes, and at least have the mental capacity of an average seven-year-old. That's where we kind of get the age that in second grade you receive your uh, first communion because that's what the church has said, that you need to at least have that mental capacity of seven years old and be properly prepared to understand that this is the Eucharist. This is not other food. This is not just of host. This is not just bread. This is Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now, um, something changed. 1969, big year, lots of reasons. Um, but, you know, as we mentioned above, it was the same year as the Novus Ordo, the New Order of the Mass, that came about under Paul VI. But there was also this request, uh, for a permission to receive the Eucharist in the hand. Um, and that's, <laughs> it's a little bit strange, right? It kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, and in fact, it it really comes out of a bad place in the sense that some bishops and some priests were allowing this practice to happen um, against the discipline of the church. And they were kind of uh, allowing it to happen because there was this kind of, um, renovation of or, or recovering of some of these um, older documents. They were starting to go back and do this research, and they found that there was this t- period of time in the church where there was reception in the hand. Um, and so they said, "Ah, oh, well, then why can't we have for the lady?" There's always been for the priest. But uh, for the lady, you know, well, why can't we have this? And the church used to do it. Well, <laughs> the problem is that they studied a little bit more. They would have realized then we're not under that discipline. Well, so this practice kind of crept up, and because of that, uh, the, they asked for permission because they were told to stop the practice, and they said, "Well, could we try this out experimentally?" So, Paul, Saint Paul the Sixth, had some strong reservations about this, but he ended up did giving this um, this permission. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a sec. I just want to hit on this point about the extraordinary form because I ended that, you know, it's the last section with the cliffhanger, the uh, kind of commercial break uh, to draw us back into the second se- session. And so why is it rarely encountered in the extraordinary form? Because it didn't happen before they, or certainly didn't happen illicitly with permission um, before um, the Council of Vatican II, uh, before the... You know, 1969, the switch over to Novus Ordo, and so these things happen concurrently, but not because of each other. It wasn't because of the Novus Ordo that we could receive in the hand. Now, in fact, um, we'll get into that a little bit more about um, the limitations that still exist on receiving in the hand. But in the extraordinary form, everyone received on the tongue, or in the in, when it was the Tridentine form before Council of Vatican II, and now that we have the extraordinary form, people are are very resistant against anyone receiving the Eucharist in the hand in the extraordinary form. Now, they don't have a right to refuse you. Let's be very clear. The priest doesn't have a right to refuse you in it. But there's a reason why in the extraordinary form you may kind of feel like everybody's receiving on the tongue and most of the time kneeling is because this was the practice. And so people are saying, you know, if you, came to, if you come to an extraordinary form mass, <laughs> why are you receiving in the hand? So, again. We're going to get to that. It's not wrong to receive in the hand. They can't refuse you to receive in the hand. But there may be some kind of pressure seemingly there. So that's just to explain the why. Now, getting back to it, if you want to read more about uh, St. Paul VI's um, document on this, his, his instruction to people, uh, you can search Google for Memorale Domini. Uh, it's his document where he really kind of had a lot of things to say about this. He did grant the permission. So um, let's be clear. He granted the permission to countries that, that asked for it, to those um, different uh, conference of bishops who asked for this permission. But he gave it then, <laughs> so it wasn't. The universal church does not get it. The countries do not get it as a whole. You know, I'm not just granting it to the nine States, for example, as one of those countries. But he said, instead, I grant it to the bishops, the individual bishops. They have to decide for their own diocese. And they have to be responsible for the proper education and the maintaining of the reverence of the Eucharist if you are going to employ the reception of the hand. So it doesn't mean that everywhere, even if it was granted, the permission was granted to the United States. It wasn't exercised until the individual bishops made that decision for their own diocese. Now, uh, he said very, very strongly, uh, the ancient practice of reception on the tongue must be preserved. Um he said, it, "It's it's not a maybe. It must be preserved. This ancient practice must be preserved because it better expresses the reverence for the Eucharist. It also preserves quote the proper respect, decorum, and dignity. It removes the danger of profanation." End quote. Um, so he was very strong on this. <laughs> He's like, "This is not even a question. You know, what does the church prefer? No. He says it must be it must be preserved." And it is still the discipline. Um, Whenever he interviewed all of the bishops, he sent out this thing and asked the bishops to kind of weigh in on this. Um, He said it's clear that the vast majority of bishops believe that the present discipline should not be changed. And so he said, we are not changing the discipline of the church. So even to today, the discipline of the church is to receive on the tongue. However, this permission has been, this exception, this permission has been granted to a few countries, and within those countries, it is up to the individual bishops. Now, um, he said there's some very strong rules that he wanted to put in place. You know, up there when we talked about the profanation um, and this education that was so necessary. He said the faithful's respectful attitude should be proportionate to what he is doing. Um, he or she should no way hold the opinion that the, the Eucharist is anything less than the very body of Christ. Now, three years later, <laughs> poor Pope, poor, poor Pope Paul VI. He, you know, he sends out a document. Three years later, he has to reemphasize it again. He did this a couple of times. But if you want to look up this document, it's a Mince Caritatis, um, and it is another instruction to clarify. And he says this so very strongly: the faithful must be taught. So three years later, there's already problems. <laughs> he's, he's having to send out a whole new instruction to to reemphasize and to correct problems the faithful must be taught that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and that therefore the worship of Latria, or as we might also call it, adoration, this worship of Latria, or adoration, belongs to God, and that is owed to Christ present in the sacrament. So, everything that we do, any kind of worship, any kind of dedication to God, any of all of this, it is also therefore to be owed to Jesus Christ present in the Eucharist. So, That's the immensity of it. This was not happening. Um, They are also to be instructed not to omit after communion the sincere and appropriate thanksgiving that is in keeping with their individual capacity, state, and occupation. Now, that little last part there um, is also kind of a wake-up call maybe for some of the rest of us, right? We may say, okay, well, I I really do believe. I, I give all of my worship, even to the Eucharist. I give all of my dedication, all of my love that I give to God, even to the Eucharist, um, that these, these hold the same place. But again, in this document, he says, But also, you all are not to admit that after communion, the sincere and appropriate thanksgiving for the Eucharist. Now, this sometimes happens to us when we receive the Eucharist, and we go back to our seats, and we kneel down and we pray. Well, I wasn't really well taught to sit down and sit, have really any good prayers. there. that It's just kind of like, well, just pray. Okay, but I wasn't giving a proper sincerity, uh, an appropriate thanksgiving um, to God. And oftentimes this also gets interrupted. This is why we sometimes see people um, praying after Mass, because they didn't get a proper time to give their thanksgiving. And so they continued. Or maybe they're taking um, a rote prayer, like one from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is very beautiful on Thanksgiving of the Eucharist, but it is kind of linked in. So if you're sitting there and you're praying with that, well, maybe you need some time after Mass as well to to finish that. But if we're not doing that, again, let's listen to uh, Saint Paul the sixth and and complete this. We must not omit this sincere and appropriate Thanksgiving after reception of the commun- of Holy Communion. Uh Saint Augustine in that kind of Latria talk, uh, the worship what is proper to God is it must be owed to Jesus Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Uh, St. Augustine reminds us, says, let no one eat that flesh, that holy flesh, without first adoring it. And so we need to have, we can't just go walk into these things, that they, we have to be prepared for them. And so we also have people going to Mass beforehand to prepare their hearts, to prepare their souls, to really adore Christ before receiving Him. Now, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, the Holy Father had this great concern that as He was granting the privilege that there was going to be this desecration, possible sacrilege, of drop, dropping those fragments of the Eucharist on the ground, um, because each of these pieces, each of these fragments um, that remain on the hands, they're not just crumbs or dust. Oh. <laughs> they are, they are the pieces of the King of Kings. And in fact, each one of those pieces is not like I have one percent of Jesus Christ now. No. You have the whole, you have 100% Jesus Christ in the little fragment. So any of those cannot just be dropped. Um, and so that would, that would lead to desecration and a possible sacrilege. But he was also concerned about the profanation, uh, meaning that the Eucharist is just seen as a piece of bread. Now, because this is a, an educational channel, a sense of, of learning more about the church, and I want to cover all these angles, this is something that has been brought up, especially in in recent years, because of the Pew Research Center, that almost 75% of Catholics in the United States don't believe in the true presence of the Eucharist. Now, again, I'm not saying I I endorse this position, but there's a lot of people who have brought up that there is this correlation, strong correlation, they want to emphasize there's a strong correlation, but maybe not causation, that because people have been receiving in the hands, that therefore they... um, Do not believe in the real presence. Now, I would not go that far. (laughs) In fact, I would really not go anywhere near that far. Um, I think that there has certainly been a lack of education that Paul VI was asking for. And there, there has been other factors which have drawn us away from the belief in the true presence of the Eucharist. But I do say, from my own personal experience, that I'll offer this up at least, when I, I was not, you know, taught to receive on the tongue, I was not taught that was an option that was, that was possible for me. Um, and so I saw there was kind of a weird guy in the church and well, not a weird guy. He was a he was a good guy, a good man um, growing up, but it was weird to me that he was receiving on the tongue and he would always receive at the end. And I would sit there and I would look and I'd say, well, why is he receiving on the tongue? And, and honestly, to be, to, to be fair, he is a good and holy man, um, that, but as a kid you know my perceptions were that uh, he's a weird guy um because he's doing things different from all of us and he he had his bible there and he would hold his fingers in the bible because he was very um careful to keep all those spaces so i thought oh it's just because his hands are full <laughs> again <laughs> you know what i wasn't taught but this is the these things that as i observed them you know i also, i saw that he really did have a great reverence for the eucharist but It wasn't until many years later when I was kind of asked, why don't you receive on the tongue? And I thought, wow, why don't I receive on the tongue? (laughs) When I started to receive on the tongue, it really did have a a transformative effect on me. I really did have a greater um, meditation, a greater devotion, a greater respect. uh, And I don't know how to explain it, except that it just seemed to be instantaneous. And I'm not saying that's for everyone. And I'm not saying that's, again, going back to support this notion of this correlation between receiving in the hands and having a lack of respect no because after all the priest receives um you know if we're concelebrating priests we receive in the hand and and out of the hand and so i'm not saying it's wrong and let's be very very clear this is my next session section on his it is not wrong to receive in the hand absolutely not if it were then the holy father could not have given the permission but let's go back and recover this it is an exception And it was granted to a limited number of countries, and only even within those countries, to those bishops who wanted to apply it, and they should have applied it well. And maybe we could discuss um, that they didn't apply it well, but neither here nor there. The permission is given, is granted, and it is not wrong. And it isn't necessarily even less devotional than to receive on the tongue. However, The traditional and universal reception in the church is still on the tongue and is still the discipline of the church. So, this is important. But, and I want to emphasize to you, if you go outside of this country, you go outside of a diocese where they don't have that permission or they haven't employed that permission, you do not have a right to force them to give it to you. For instance, if you go to Mexico, Mexico does not have the permission To receive in the hands. If you go to Mexico on vacation, you don't sit there in front of the priest and say, I receive in the hands, you have to give it to me in the hand. No, you don't have a right to that. All right, there's a permission here in the United States, where you are, where you live, where it's active, and that's it. Um, You can look up a list, uh, find a list online if you travel these countries. If it's offered, then that's something that you can employ. But otherwise, you don't have a right to it. Um, That being said, As a canonist, I also want to emphasize that as long as you are in a diocese that employs this permission, you, as the communicant, are the one who is free to decide how to receive the Eucharist. It is not up to the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. It is not up to the deacon. It is not up to the priest how you receive. No, they cannot forbid you or force you to receive in one way or the other. It is your decision. Now, caveat. (laughs) <laughs> as as my professors would say in, in Italy, uh, open parentheses, and then we'll close the parentheses, open parentheses, we have to, uh, we have to remember that we are in COVID time here, and different parishes and different dioceses are taking different approaches on how to best facilitate this. Um, because, again, in the rest of the world, there is no reception in the hands. Um, so even during COVID time, they're not receiving in any other different way. So and you still do have the right to receive in the traditional way of the church. But understand that there are some considerations here that everyone's trying to work with. So please be patient with your bishops. Please be patient with your priests who are trying to exercise in, in the way they think is best to help remedy this situation. So just a little bit of patience uh, during this COVID time goes a long way. So, close parentheses. I just ended on the fact that they cannot force you to receive in one way or the other. Now, because of that, I really encourage you to make a decision. Um, I wasn't presented with a decision when I was growing up. Uh, I wasn't taught about reception on the tongue. And, you know, this certainly is a direct violation of what Paul the sixth said. But, you know, be that as it may, here, here I am now. And so most of us have probably really never made this decision. It's kind of been forced on us probably by an uninformed catechist, not by a malicious catechist, not by some kind of subversive catechist. let's not get these crazy ideas in our head but just just the fact that they were probably uninformed and they just thought this was the way that things are done now. it's new and we're all we're all going to this new thing no so but it's your decision. I want you to really make a decision then. Maybe try it out but okay, if you're going to try out receiving on the tongue for the first time, uh, a couple of notes. First, please don't lick the priest's finger. <laughs> um, and 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 with that, just give him a, a big enough platform with your tongue, to for for him to lay our Lord Jesus gently on your tongue. So, you know, we've heard don't stick your tongue out at anyone. Well, okay, except for the priest at the Eucharist time. You know, go ahead and give him that kind of platform to place Jesus on, um, and then to receive the Lord. Now. Um, (laughs) I'll also go ahead and give up a little advice for those who are receiving the hand. Uh, you never grab, you never, you never do the pinchy thing. You never take the grab. You never do that. In fact, we should be following the instructions of St. Cyril of Jerusalem. If we're going to go back to this as the kind of emphasis moment of why we're receiving this at all, we should listen to him. He says, place your left hand as a throne beneath your right as befits one who is about to receive the king. Then receiving him, take care that nothing is lost, for whatever you lose is evidently a loss to you, as it were one of your own members. Now, he's saying this, if you lose one of those particles, those little pieces there, you can see that you can visually have, if you lose that, if you drop that, you should drop to your knees and basically look for it as if your arm fell off. And the reason being is because that's as best as he could give to anybody having an idea of how precious this is. It's as if your own arm fell off your body. And so he says, you know, he says this is how you should care for the Eucharist. <laughs> that if you were to drop a little fragment of it, it's as if you dropped your own arm. This is one reason why I know that a lot of people have gone to receiving on the tongue is because they don't want to deal with that kind of pressure. They don't want to have to deal with the, the idea that they are dropping the particles of Jesus Christ again, I want to emphasize very strongly it is not wrong if you are in a diocese that employs this permission, has received it in their country it is not wrong for you to receive the Eucharist in the hands. But I would suggest to take care of certain things. Now, uh, a lot's been going on. So <laughs> again, um, I'm happy to answer you all's questions. Uh, this is how this program works. It was a very long episode today. Uh, I'm very excited about it. Uh, but Again, trying to get some of the, through some of these things. Uh, the Spanish one's going to take a little bit longer time. I've, I'm short on time today. But um, if you guys have questions, send them in to pastorplusnaris at org. If you send them just to pastor at org, sure, it'll get to me. But it won't get into the show probably because those questions, I, I search for this. I search for this term in my email. And so that's how I can make sure I get these questions organized. Otherwise, I just think somebody's asking me a question directly, and I just answer it. So, <laughs> and if you don't see your question come up here, be patient. Uh, we've got a lot going on. Um, we've got you know stuff in the pipeline. We've got things coming up. I've got more ideas that are starting to roll about. Uh, more questions coming in. I enjoy them. So we'll try to get more onto there. And as kind of a final reminder, you know, I'm very happy about all of the things that have happened recently. We've got this week. We got onto Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Radio Public and Spotify, um, super exciting things. So if you guys want to listen as a podcast, you can do so. And uh, with that, I just want to end up the show and remind everybody that, you know, this whole thing is to move from ignorance to knowing. And that's why we're going towards Narus, Um that we become these knowing people, that we have a knowledge of something. And that's the whole point of the show. So God with you and God bless.